Morning, everyone. Thank you, Trevor. Let me, uh, let me begin with a question. How should we live? Or more specifically, how should we live the, the Christian life? What should we live for? It's a, it's a reasonably big question. But I wonder how you would, you would answer it. How should we live? Uh, I want to give you an answer, uh, springing out of our text for this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and also based on how I see and how I understand and, and read the rest of Scripture. We should live for the glory of God and the good of others. For the glory of God and the good of others. We're, we're going to look at and tease out a few different issues this morning, but that's the big idea, so to speak. That's the 10-word phrase that, that I'd love you to just take away from this morning. If you hear nothing else, just hear those 10 words. Just take them away and, and kind of use them as a, a filter through which you kind of process all that you do on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. How should I live for the glory of God and for the good of others? If you do have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? Uh, It's page 1151 in those Red Pew Bibles. And we're going to pick up from where we left off last week at verse 14 as we continue and as as we conclude for now our Church in the City series. As Trevor said, this is my kind of last Sunday here for for about four months. And I know I have promised that we will pick up in 1 Corinthians again. We're going to go back and look at uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, which we jumped uh, for lots of reasons. But we'll come back in the new year and look at those together. So this is us kind of continuing our series, but concluding it for six months. All right. So it starts verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And if you were here last week, we we mentioned these four things, these kind of four sins, these three, four wrong practices that threaten to undermine our Christian faith and practice. And first on that list is idolatry. And as Paul speaks into this issue, he urges the Christians at Corinth to run a mile from it. Run a mile from it. Back in chapter 6, verse 8, he says exactly the same thing regarding the second on that list, sexual immorality. He just says, listen, flee from it. Remove yourselves from it. And Paul realizes the damage that these things can do and the impact that they can have on Christian life and Christian discipleship and Christian witness. And therefore, he he pleads with these Christians at Corinth, please get yourselves away from these things as fast as your legs can carry you. You see, there's no such thing as casual sex and there's no such thing as casual worship. Flee from both. You've got to create distance and quite a lot of distance between you and these things. And I want to suggest that like a couple of thousand years later, that, that's still great advice. It's not just faith-saving advice, it's, it's face-saving advice. But let's read on, verses 15 to 22, and as we often do here at Windsor, let's, let's stand for the public reading of God's word. So Paul goes on to say, having, having said, now remember, it, he's, he's not scolding them because he has said here, therefore, uh, my dear friends, this is out of a heart of love. This is someone who cares about people. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And then he says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. 
Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Grab a seat. It's, uh, it's really important to kind of remember what has prompted Paul to, to write like this. The Christians at Corinth in, in this relatively new city church, and it is a relatively new city church, but they were slightly confused about something, and, and they were actually having arguments amongst themselves about this. Is it still okay, as Christians, is it still okay to continue attending the pagan temples and eating idol sacrificed food? Some are making the point, you know something, surely we have every right to do it. Total freedom to do it. That alongside meeting together as Christians to worship and to share a meal, including bread and wine, they were arguing, listen, is it not okay to go along the pagan temples and somehow dip into the worship there? Not really engage with it. Not really get too involved. Not really fully embrace it. And as Paul heard this reasoning, he was deeply concerned. He knew where it was heading. This had the risk of idolatry written all over it. Which is something Paul, as I say, knows can potentially wreck someone's faith. It's why at the beginning of this chapter, he referred them back, if you were here last week, he referred them back to their ancestors' problem with idolatry. He says, listen, you've got to learn from their mistakes. But rather than just leave it at a flee from idolatry, don't do it. Don't touch it with a barge pole. Paul actually tries to help them understand why he says this. And, and I think this is, this is such good practice. Because we respond far better whenever someone explains why things are potentially dangerous and risky. Rather than just says, don't go there, don't do that. And so rather than Paul just saying, listen, flee from idolatry, he explains why. And so Paul says something about this. The Lord's Supper. Now, he doesn't say a lot here. He, he will say far more in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But what he does say here is this. As you eat and drink at the Lord's table, you are participating. Key word. You are participating in the blood and the body of Christ. Greek word, kanonia. So it's about fellowship. This is about communion. This is about sharing in the body and blood of Jesus. There is a real, intimate, meaningful connection when you eat and drink here. You're joining in something. You're actually uniting together in something incredibly profound. 
That's why he draws attention to the one loaf and says, yeah, we're many, but we're one body for we share one loaf. In other words, this is a highly significant corporate worship activity. I've said this before. For me, that this is central to what we do here. It's a potent shared experience. This is no empty act. It's a living, dynamic, fellowship-creating act. But here was the problem in Corinth. If that's true, which it is, then by going along to pagan temples and by eating idol-sacrificed food, they are actually participating in, sharing in, fellowshipping in, that which is potentially disastrous. And Paul makes the point, verse 18, I'll look at this, that whenever the children of Israel ate the sacrifices, and here's this word again, they participated in the altar. In other words, they shared in the very life of God. That, that, and I don't have time to really explain this in a huge amount of detail. But that's what Paul was saying. And therefore, and here's the sting, here's the warning, those who eat and drink at pagan temples are in danger of becoming partners, sharers in, intimately connected with and to idols. But it's worse than that, says Paul. And I do realize that that some of what Paul says is slightly frightening. It's well outside of our comfort zones. But because at the end of the day, an idol is nothing, And if you kind of go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 4, Paul makes this very point. He says, an idol is nothing at all in the world. And he also says there, there's only one God. So you see all these other gods, Zeus, Apollo, and all of that. Listen, they don't actually exist. But there isn't just nothing there when you go to these places. There are demons there. And so as Paul says in verse 20, here's the warning. I do not want you to be participants with demons. I mean, this, I recognize this as strong. And so here's the crunch. And kind of the hub of his argument and point, and hopefully I've been faithful to God's word as I've tried to explain this. But those who sit at this table, which we, we're going to do this morning, Those who sit at this table participate in, they share in the body and the blood of Jesus. They participate and share in this. And therefore, to sit at another table and flirt with the powers of this dark world is asking for trouble. It's crazy. It will compromise you and your faith. Is what Paul is saying to these Corinthian believers in this context at this time. As one commentator has written, to use your freedom, your rights to switch to and fro between the Messiah in whom the world is rescued from evil and evil forces that are trying to claw it back again is sheer madness. Sheer madness. Now I readily appreciate that this is, this is not easy to apply into our context and lives. Not many of us are heading off to pagan temples to eat idol-sacrificed food or wanting the right or freedom to do it. But there is here, and I don't want to push this too far, 
but there is here an urgent warning regarding idolatry. This danger of worshipping Christ and... And then for each and every one of us, we kind of need to fill in the blanks. Because whenever idols are worshipped, whatever form those idols take in our lives, it seems to me, according to this text, in some way, demons may be involved. And so Paul's advice is flee, create distance, run a mile from, get out of there as fast as your legs can carry you. You do not want to be compromised here. And anyway, look at verse 22. Don't you realize that? See whenever you mix this up, see whenever you compromise this at whatever level this applies to you and I, when it comes to worshiping Christ and we awaken the Lord's jealousy. That's what he says in verse 22. Do you know something? This matters to God. God wants all of us, it would seem, not just part of us, total worship, not partial worship, wholehearted devotion, not lukewarm Christianity. And we know that from his word. But before we we kind of move on and and tease this out even further, I want to go back to this and what we're going to do in a few moments. Because each week, and I love the fact that we do this, and I, I know I say this time and time again, I love the fact that we do this every single week at Windsor. And I know there's a risk of it becoming kind of like, you know, familiarity breeding content. But each week as we sit around this table to eat and drink together in this living, dynamic, fellowship-creating act, that, that's what this is. We have the opportunity, and, and I, I mean, sadly, down through the years, kind of churches have fallen out over this and what it all means. And I, and I, don't, I don't want to deal with all those like divisions over this, but sadly, we've kind of lost what it's all about. But as we eat and drink here together in a few moments, we are participating in the body and the blood of Jesus, sharing in it in a meaningful way via these simple yet profound symbols. And what we also have is this opportunity to renew our sense of gratitude for all that this means and also our commitment to say, do you know something, God? I'm here again, I'm in this place, I'm eating and drinking, I'm participating in the body and blood of Jesus and I'm recommitting myself to, you know, I don't want to serve any foreign gods. It's all about you. It's all about you. And we're going to sing a song at the very end that the guys were singing during the offering. I will serve no foreign god or any other treasure. For you alone are my heart's desire. And at this table, we have that opportunity again to say, yeah, this kind of brings me back to what that's all about. Plus, this morning, instead of our usual pre-cut individual pieces of bread, uh, we have, we're going to have just one loaf, uh, which Trevor is going to break and encourage us to share together, which, yes, it highlights and reminds us of our unity. I'm never too sure what the kind of little individual pieces of bread communicates, but it's, it's a very practical and hygienic thing. I understand that. But actually, the whole one loaf thing, yes, it, it, it signifies our unity, but it's more than that. It's us saying, you know something? Here we are together participating in, sharing in the body and blood of Jesus. Back to the text, nearly, kind of nearly done. Because in verse 23, Paul, Paul knows what some of the Corinthian Christians are thinking. Or what they've been saying. They'll have been saying, but hang on a minute, Paul. What about our rights and our freedom? Let's go back to this. 
Do we not have the right to go where we like, do what we like, eat what we like? That's what, that's what he picks up in verse 23. And Paul hears this. But he wants them to realize that not everything is beneficial or constructive. Not everything's helpful. Not everything's productive. And the critical issue to consider as you work out what it means about how you should live, and now we're back to where we started, is you've got to think, is this for the good of others? You simply have got to consider others. You see, when we get hung up about my rights and my freedom, and we forget about my responsibilities, and I know a few of you have been speaking to me and said, yeah, this is, this is one of the problems I really have with the whole issue of rights and, and freedom. That we hear, it is such a modern thing, but it's been about for years. We hear about rights and freedom, but there's nothing about responsibility. And so Paul here is saying, yeah, listen, here, you need to, you need to bear this in mind. Because if you always get hung up on rights and freedom, you'll run the risk of forgetting others, ignoring your neighbor, making this all about me. It's tempting. Of course, it's tempting to simply do your own thing and ignore those around you. But you know something? It's faith defeating. Paul urges the Corinthian believers to think about what is helpful to others. What is it that builds up others? Don't think me first, think others first, which is a consistent theme in the teaching of Jesus in Scripture. It's not easy, it's a real challenge, but surely it's fundamental to Christian discipleship and witness. The bit that Trevor read from us from Philippians 2, just before it, is there not that bit that in humility we are to consider others better than ourselves? That's the way we're meant to live our lives. Others first. Whatever you do, yeah, you've got the right and you've got the freedom to do all kinds of things. Think about your responsibilities. How should we live for the good of others? Paul then gives a couple of uh, situations to help ground this. Verses 25, 26. Not going to read them. Just scan them and follow these through with me. So the first situation, two situations here. Here's the first. Bottom line, you've got freedom to buy meat at the local market, take it home and cook up a storm with it even if it might have been sacrificed in the temple to an idol, right? You've got the freedom to buy it at a market stall, if that's where it's now for sale, and take it home and eat it. And he justifies this freedom by quoting Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything, and it's in our text. God made everything, says Paul. He made it good. So listen, buy it, Take it home, eat it as God's gift, pray a prayer of thanksgiving for it. But listen, meat sold at the market that you take home, tear away. Mind you, just remember verses 14 to 22, don't eat it at a pagan temple. Okay? But you can kind of take it home and eat it if it's being sold from the market stall. As one recent writer put it, that's the difference between venue and menu. Okay? Second situation is slightly different. Say you get invited for a meal to the home of someone who's not a Christian. Here's Paul's first point. Eat whatever's put in front of you. Tuck into it. Enjoy it. But if someone else, and here's one of the problems with this text, nobody quite knows who this someone else might be that he's referring to, but if someone else draws attention to the fact, you see what you're about to put into your mouth? That was sacrificed down at the temple to an idol. Paul says, listen, see if that happens, you're probably better not to eat it. 
Not because it's wrong. Not because it's bad. Not because you don't have the right to do it. Not because you don't have the freedom to do it. But out of respect for that person's conscience, if you tuck into it now, given what you've been told, you're going to create a problem for that person. You have every right to eat it, but it's not going to be helpful to that person if you do. And I know I could kind of take this in all kinds of different directions, but here is Paul's point, and here's what I want you to take away from this morning. Think about others. Nobody can make you set down your knife and fork. Nobody's the right to judge you whether you eat or not. Nobody can demand that you stop eating, but listen, do it voluntarily for the good of others in this situation. Make the choice for the sake of someone else. And you know what? That's true freedom. That's true freedom. And that's real responsibility. And Paul's getting to the end of this section of teaching, and he comes up with a therefore and You know when you come to one of these therefores that here comes the big point. Some of you are thinking, could you not just have started with the therefore? But he comes to the therefore and here's, here's his point. Here is the sum up of everything a Christian needs to know about what it means to live a holy life before a watching world. Therefore, or so in some of your Bibles, whether you eat or drink, okay? So whether you do or not. In fact, whatever you do, Do it all for the glory of God. That should be uppermost in your mind. That should inform and direct your decisions. Here's the critical perspective that should impact all our choices. Whatever you do and in everything you do, honor God. That's the bottom line. That's what really matters. That's what it's all about. And then Paul, verse 33, returns to this previous basic rule of life, something that he lived by. And he said, listen, you know, I try to do what is best for others, not for myself. Because in doing this, and again, just look at the first verse of chapter 11 because it's still part of this initial block of teaching. In doing this, he says, by thinking about others, I am following the example of Jesus. And therefore, what I'm urging you to do is follow my example. And so back to my opening question, how should we live? For the glory of God and the good of others. And if we make that our desire and our aim and our intention, you will run a mile from idolatry. You'll run a mile from sexual immorality. In fact, you'll run a mile from any other sin that's going to wreck your faith. Plus, you're going to avoid becoming a stumbling block to someone. And it's my prayer that that'll be my story. It's also my prayer that that will be this church's story. That all we do will be for the glory of God and for the good of others. I'm going to just pray before I hand back to Trevor, but uh, just before I do that, I'm also going to pray for Paul and Alice, who are just sitting over here, who are going to be heading off to Tanzania with Tear Fund in September. Uh, They may be back before they go. not sure if they will be, but I also want to pray Paul's grandfather, who we were praying for on Wednesday night, who is Stephen Singleton, known to many of us here. His father passed away on Friday. And so I just want to pray for the you guys and for your family as well as just commit what we've been thinking about to God. So let's, let's pray. Father, again, I just ask that you would uh, take the words that I've shared and if anything has not been of you or not been true to your word, that they'll be quickly forgotten. But God, I do ask that you would help me and us as a church 
to live for the glory of God and the good of others. May that be our desire, intention, aim, driving force. May we, f- we filter everything we say and do day by day, moment by moment through that lens. And I want to pray for Paul and Alice. I thank you for them, for their involvement here at this church. They're being part of one of the small groups. And I really commit them to you, God, as they have taken these career breaks. And as they head off with Tear Fund to serve you. I pray your blessing upon them as they prepare in these next few weeks and then as they leave. And I also pray for them as a family following the loss of Paul's grandfather, Stephen's father. I pray for his grandmother. I pray for the wider family circle that you will comfort them and be to them their rock and their their strong foundation. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.